This is Ethios with Bemneti Meskin from ethiospodcast.com. Ethios is a podcast that chronicles the lives and accomplishments of people of Ethiopian heritage and Ethiopian influence around the world. It's about what they do, how they got to where they are, and what inspires them. On this episode, I caught up with Associate Creative Director David Mesfin about advertising, surfing, Greek, and much more. So my position is basically, uh, as an associate or creative director, is to have that partner and sort of pitch an idea and work with the creative director to sell the idea to the client. David Mesfin is an associate creative director at the agency In Ocean Worldwide in Huntington Beach, California, where he has worked on numerous projects, including Hyundai's Super Bowl TV commercial and campaign, as well as the 2014 World Cup campaign, hashtag BecauseFootball. His effort includes television, digital media, traditional print, and outdoor advertising. His social media work has helped Hyundai to become the top branded hashtag among World Cup conversations on Twitter and raised Hyundai's Twitter following by 40%. David has also taught advertising and design at his alma mater, California State University, Long Beach. David has received numerous awards from the creative and advertising industry, such as the One Show, Khan, Clio, Webby Awards, Communication Arts, Google Creative Sandbox, Addy, DigiDay, TED, and much more. David joins us today from Long Beach, California. Welcome to Ethios, Dave. Hey, Bumnet. How are you, man? Thank you for the invitation. Absolutely, man. Thanks, thanks for making some time. No problem. Let's jump right into it, man. So tell us, tell us about your background. Where did you grow up, and you know what was your childhood like? Ah, uh, sure. I actually grew up in Ethiopia. Um, I was born in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, and I grew up in the Gorgis, Gorgis area, I should say, which is uh, Saint George's Church up on the north side of uh, Addis Ababa. I think it's north or south side. Um, yeah, I grew up there until I was 14 and then eventually uh, moved to the States uh, in the 80s. But prior to moving to the States, I uh, used to hang out uh, down by Piazza where my dad used to work. Uh, there's a place called uh, Neonatis. And there I used to just, you know, hang out with all kinds of uh creatives you know that was like the advertising agency back then and my dad was a uh, head of account so i can get into any department and the one department that i loved hanging out in was the you know the advertisers the designers and ad writers so that was basically my uh, sort of like way into this industry really so you you were exposed to advertising in ethiopia yeah, yeah. At a young age, uh, I mean, back then, I mean, you can imagine a lot. A lot of the ads were, um, you know, a lot of it was graphic design, but at the same time, there was some advertising. Some of it was propaganda. I remember the tenth anniversary of uh, the revolution back then. Uh, we had North Koreans come in, and they helped us uh, basically build a bunch of neons. You know, I don't know. If if you were there, I'm sure a lot of people uh, that were there in Ethiopia in the 80s remember all the neon signs. And 
And, uh, you know, I used to work back then, I used to work with the neon department where, you know, we built all these signs. I used to go up on top of all these buildings and put, you know, whether it's a slogan or the animated, you know, neon sign. So it was like, you know, it was, it was, it was my exposure basically into the arts and, you know, design and advertising. So I was hooked at a young age. Wow. That's awesome. So tell us about when you went to school in Ethiopia and, and when you came here and, and where you went when you came. Uh, sure. I went to Greek school. So my, uh, my mother's side, um, her, her father was Greek. So her, her mother was Ethiopian, her father was Greek. So we ended up uh, in the Greek sort of like getting raised in the, we we were raised in the greek community uh the 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 greek school where i learned actually greek from first grade to eighth grade so i was there until eighth grade and you know a lot of it uh a lot of the education was um around you know greek mythology greek alphabet greek uh you know everything in greek we did have some english classes and a few I'm here at classes. I wish there was more of it, but you know, back then that was a Greek school, so sort of learned everything in Greek, and then I would go home and speak in an Amharic. Uh, so that was that was that was school for me at a young age. Uh, one interesting story, actually, uh, when I was in, I think I want to say sixth grade. Yeah, sixth grade. I remember. Uh, we went to a place called Olympiakos. Like sometimes they will take us down there, and you will get a day off. And that the one day we had a day off, I just took pencil and paper with me down there, and I started drawing. And I started drawing, you know, people uh, by their cars, cars, you know, people playing tennis. It was just sketching away. And my teacher. Um, ended up seeing it. Actually, his daughter saw it and she's like, oh my God, this is great. You know, I want to show it to my dad. I'm like, sure. Showed it to uh, to her dad and he was just blown away. He's like, this is great. This is amazing. You know, he never knew I can draw because we didn't have art classes back then. You know, it was mostly, you know, general like science, math and so forth. So to see a person drawing, it was like, where did he get all these skills? Well, I got the skills at Neonatis because I used to sketch all, of, all the time. So he was, you know, he sort of, you know, pushed me in the direction. He's like, you know, you're, you're, you really have some talent, you know, as he put it, some talent. That's I said, awesome. Okay. And uh, that, that was like, okay. You remember his name? You know, shoot. I don't remember his name. I, I know his, his, uh, his daughter's name. Um, <laughs> I'm sure you yeah. do. <laughs> I started I'm something. <laughs> so you speak, so do you, I got a question for you. Hope. I know, right? I'm sorry. So do you speak fluent like, Greek? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I speak fluent Greek. That's awesome. All right. So, so, so when, what, uh, where did you go after that? Actually, before, even before we go there, what was that experience like at Greek school? Was you know was it diverse? Because I had I had a couple of friends who went there, but I I just really don't know what the school is set up like. No, it was pretty diverse. You know, the thing about the Greek school is I don't know if you know the history, but the Greeks sort of like migrated during World War II. So, or even prior to World War II, Haile Selassie, who was the king of Ethiopia, sort of opened the door for you know foreigners to come in, basically. Uh, and live their life comfortably. So, you know, 
they, they had a community center. Uh, he would give them, you know, they would purchase land or if they needed land. I mean, he took really good care of the Ethiopians and Armenians. You know? And the, the Greeks basically opened the school. And I would say 99% of them uh, were Greeks because it was built for them and they needed it because they couldn't go back home. And they really flourished, you know, in Ethiopia. They had all kinds of businesses. Now, the second phase sort of came in uh, with kids like us, you know. So the first generation of Greeks, some of them ended up getting married to Ethiopians and those ended up having kids. So there's the mixed kids. And then the next generation, which is my generation, my mother ended up getting married to, you know, my dad was Ethiopian. We we're like the third generation of, you know, I guess you can call, you know, two, was it two third Greek? So we, we ended up there. And then it just slowly, right now, you know, there's a very small percentage of actually Greeks in that school. So there was diversity when I was there in terms of, you know, the population. You had the Greeks, the half Greeks, you know, the quarter and so forth. So it was quite interesting. But the thing about it is you're learning Greek. So you're learning Greek if you're going to go to Ethiopia and to Greece and live there. Uh, some of them ended up moving to Greece, but for me, I ended up, you know, in the States. So the Greek sort of comes handy because it allowed me to learn English much quicker. It became my third language. So that was that was the great thing about it. But for a lot of people, you know, that ended up in Greece, that worked out. And then for the ones that stayed in Ethiopia, there's a community where, you know, they actually, you know, uh, take care of each other. Uh, they're part of, you know, whether it's Olympiakos, the church, or you know, the school, they still work there. So it's it's an interesting little, you know, community. Oh, yeah. My brother went to school there. My sister, both brothers went there. My mother and father worked there. So it, it's, you know, it takes care of a lot of people. So that was actually before high school. I was in eighth grade and I ended up getting the opportunity to move to the States. Uh, it, was, uh, it, was, it was an adoption by a, a Greek priest, uh, Demetrios Kuchel. Uh, and, you know, his family here ended up adopting me. They brought me to St. Augustine, Florida in uh, 1988. And then I lived with them for, you know, for about eight years. I ended up going to a high school, uh, St. Augustine High School. Uh, I finished there. Uh, and then after that, I ended up going to what's called Flagler College. It's a small uh, college in St. Augustine for two years. And then, you know, I, I actually, uh, my senior year, when I graduated from St. Augustine High School, I ended up coming to California, and I met a few Ethiopians, actually a very good friend of my brother um, that uh, sort of introduced me to a lot of people, and I fell in love with uh, California. Um, and one of the things that I love is surfing. So in St. Augustine, I learned how to surf. Uh, one of the few Ethiopian surfers. So I ended up uh, wanting to move to California and I wanted to make sure it was close to the beach. So I ended up at uh, in Long Beach and I've been here since uh, 96, I want to say. Yeah, since 96 I've been in Long Beach. I ended up going to California State University, Long Beach. Um, I ended up getting my degree in um, uh, visual communication advertising and the design program. And you have, you know, they have the four-year program, and then you could do an additional 
BFA program, which is Bachelor's of Fine Art. It was a, an impacted program. You would have to apply for it and get in. Uh, I applied the first time. I didn't get in. I was very disappointed. I was hard on myself. And uh, I went back and, you know, went back and redid my whole portfolio all over again and applied the second time I got in. And, you know, what they say, you know, there's reasons why you don't go, you know, why you don't get it the first time. And there's, I, I, I became a better, I, I want to say I probably became a better designer the second time around, just a little bit more or a lot more refined. Uh, so two years there, uh, graduated um, and got out in the industry. So that's sort of like my, I know it's long, but my schooling, you know, Greek school and then St. Augustine High School. Uh, and then from St. Augustine, I went to Flagler College, from Flagler to Cal State Long Beach. I, I want to hear more about your experience in Florida. You know, what was that like? Did you feel at home? Did you did you feel welcome? Did you feel like you were the odd one out? What, you, what was the what was the experience there? Uh, it's a really really good question. So when I first came there, uh, I actually fell in love with St. Augustine. You know, I liked the city. Uh, the place where I lived was right by the beach. Um, you know, the waves, the surf, you name it, everything about it. But, you know, eventually, like any other place, you know, you start finding things. And one of the things that I found out was, you know where I'm going. This Racism is alive and well in Florida, I'm sure. <laughs> no, you don't say. <laughs> you know, and and the the thing with me was, you know, I was around, you know, Greeks and everything and in and, and, and Ethiopia. And, you know, I had somewhat a taste of it. But here was completely different. You know, there, there's a history of it, you know. Um, and St. Augustine, it was really the deep south, you know. So I ended up uh, in high school, I remember. And, you know, I walked in the cafeteria and basically... Like half of the students were on one side and half of the students on the other side. It's like the African-American students were on one side, the white kids on the other side. It's like, where do you sit? You know, and for me, I really didn't care. I mean, it's just humanity. You know, come on, you know. So, I mean, for a long time, I just sort of sat on by myself, you know, didn't do a thing, uh, didn't join any group because I was still learning the language. So uh, I was actually embarrassed to even talk to anyone. Um, and it took a while. And one of the things that actually ended up opened me up to the whole culture and getting to know, uh, you know, America a bit more was, again, surfing. So a lot of the kids that went to the school that actually lived in my neighborhood were surfers. So and, you know, when you talk about surfers, they're just really kick back open-minded people, you know, loved reggae. So, you know, there were things that helped me connect with them. You know, the music that we listened to was the same. There was like this free spirit. They didn't care what I looked like, how I talked and everything. It was all about surfing. So I sort of embraced that culture and ended up, you know, actually hanging out with mostly surfers in, in, in St. Augustine. Um, and then, you know, after a while, I started learning about the history of, you know, of St. Augustine, you know, I started reading a little bit more about, you know, segregation, you know, civil rights and so forth. And, you know, you start, your, your mind starts opening up and you start seeing things and you start questioning things. And, you know, I met a lot of 
really, really interesting and good African-Americans uh, in, in, in St. Augustine. And I used to work at actually at a restaurant and it, it, it was, you know, it was kind of weird. You know, a lot of the African-Americans were sort of left uh, to work, you know, the mediocre sort of job in the background. I mean, this was like in the 80s. And I was like, my God, you know, this is kind of weird. Um, because you come from Ethiopia and, you know, you're front and center. And, you know, to see it like where, you know, a lot of people are pushing African-Americans back. Just I was like, my God, you know, got to push. And then you meet these interesting African-Americans also. Like there was this guy that had a jazz club. And he was like in the forefront of bringing jazz musicians and so forth. So the contrast was interesting. You know, you had some people who, you know, who sort of like accepted it. And there were some people that just like in, in the midst of all that, they stood out. They, 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 sort, of, uh, they sort of, you know, uh, pushed back. And those were the people that were sort of like uh, interesting to me. So I used to go to this jazz club and hang out with this guy. And he used to tell me all kinds of stuff. And he's one of the guys who probably gave it. He gave me actually the autobiography of Malcolm X. And that was interesting. You know, I read that and I was like a completely different person, you know, that that basically, you know, opened up my mind on what took place and what, you know, what the South was like. Well, not the South, but what America was like. So that, you know, it took for me, it was like. It, these were things, you know, you asked the question, were there Ethiopians or not? No, there wasn't really Ethiopians. I sort of had to figure everything out sort of on my own, you know. In St. Augustine, where I lived on the beach, I was probably the third black guy on that. On that. It was, it's a small island. There's a place called, Santa, uh, uh, you know, Anastasia Island. There was, one, there was one guy that used to work in the restaurants. There was another guy that was surfer <laughs> and it was me on the main so on the main sad. side of the island i mean there was a lot of african-americans right, but right. on that island there was three of us so right. a lot of it i had to discover sort of like on my own and learn about you know uh race relations in america and, but how did that affect you did you filter it out or did you have were you able to see past it or what, what effect did it have on you I mean, in terms of effect, at first it was, you know, it was sort of like a shock. It came out of nowhere because, again, like I said, I went to a Greek school and I learned about, you know, the Odyssey and, you know, Greek mythology, you know, the Spartans and everything. And no one ever mentioned, you know, not, not to mention a Greek school, but even here, you know, a lot of this history back then, you know, in the high school was sort of like you have to dig for it. So as I started discovering more and more things, it, I mean, it was, it was a shock to the system, you know. It, it, it uh, you know, I mean, I, I, didn't, I didn't really know anything about race relations in America, you know, it was zero until I came here and found out. And, and that was my experience. Interesting. So, so then a few years go by and you end up coming to Long Beach and then how how early did you know that you wanted to get into the industry of, of graphic design and the creative industry as a whole? Oh, that was like when I was in Ethiopia, man. When I was in uh, at Neonadis, I fell in love with, you know, everything creative, you know, anything that has to do with design, advertising. So there was no question when I ended up in college, like the degree I wanted to get was, you know, design and advertising. As simple as that. There was nothing else. 
And that, I mean, that's, that's such a unique background. I don't know of anybody who had that type of exposure to that industry in Ethiopia. So that influence, I'm sure, had a lot to do with your career path. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm very thankful for all the people that exposed me to different things. You know, whenever I go back to Ethiopia, I, I find a lot of these people, you know, and uh, we talk about, you know, we reminisce about the good old days and they're all like, ah, oh, you're like a tiny little man now growing up with kids, you know, it's, it's, but it's, it's always wonderful catching up with people. So you come to Long Beach, California. That seemed like a leap going from Florida to California. I know it's, the coasts are very different, but what, how did you adjust? So one of the reasons why I actually moved to California was, um, you know, when I came here, I met my brother's best friend and introduced me to a lot of Ethiopians. I felt like, you know, I was sort of losing my, my identity when I lived in Florida, you know, and just the environment and the things surrounding me. And by moving to California, I felt like, you know, I can embrace my culture again. Um, you know, I can speak the language, I can eat the food, uh, and hopefully meet uh, a wife, you know, <laughs> Ethiopian. <laughs> which you did. <laughs> which I did eventually. I found her. Your lovely uh, wife, Maki, which you yes, yes, give a shout out to. Yes, the, li- the lovely wife. Um, so it, it worked out. You know, I ended up moving here and, you know, meeting a lot of people and actually meeting her through a very good friend of mine from Ethiopia that introduced me to her. And, um, and uh, you know, and went and started, you know, incorporating a lot of, you know, the Ethiopian culture, traveling back home, you know, bringing my family here, you know, my, my mom and dad visiting me and everything. So it was good. You know, it was like it was it was the next phase of of my life. You know, it's like born in Ethiopia, exposed to the American culture in Florida and then moving to California to sort of like find the balance between living in America and also embracing my culture, you know, with everyone in the diaspora. And what was what was your schooling like going to Long Beach, which has one of the best design courses in, in the West Coast? What was that like and, and what types of uh, projects were you working on in school? And did you know right away that you were going to get into advertising or did you want to do something else with your career? Yeah, I mean, the, the program back then, it was, I think it was like number eight in the country. Um, and I ended up, you know, having to finish, you know, my, you know, regular, you know, four years of, you know, curriculum. While you're taking the four years, you know, you start taking art classes first, you know, just drawing paintings and so forth. Um, and then you move to design classes and before you move to design classes, actually, there's a couple classes you have to take a theory of design. Um, there was a professor called Professor Krauss who started the, actually the design program at Cal State Long Beach and you would take his class so you have an understanding of where design comes from. Not only just, you know, graphic, but he gives you really a broad understanding of, you know, uh, industrial design, you know, illustration, graphic, you know, all of it encompassing. He sort of gives you, he paints a broad picture of what design is as a designer, you know. 
And from there, you start taking, you know, typography classes, learning, understanding, you know, the, 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 the structure of typography and, you know, and actually creating your own personal typography uh, that that sort of reflects who you are. So from there, you start moving into learning applications. You know, back then it was, I think it was Quark, Illustrator, Photoshop. So you learn all the tools. And then from uh, learning the tools and so forth, then you move to more conceptual phase. So this is you're getting close to your senior year. You know, you sort of have an understanding of, of you know, painting, drawing, colors, you know, uh, understanding the theory of colors, understanding the theory of design, and then, you know, understanding, uh, you know, the tools. Now you can actually execute. You have all the, you know, the the elements or the, the tools that you need to execute an idea. So you could take a couple classes in um, idea development, and these vary. You know, some of them might be, you know, a packaging design. Some of it might be an actual advertising class some of it might be you know uh print layout um and then once you get into the program then it's really two years of really refining your skills and your concept and your execution um you know it was like those the, those were the three things that were, we were sort of like taught you know concept design execution so you would get actually great in those three areas, you know, how good is your concept, how well is your design, and then how well it's executed. And in my last couple of years um, at Cal State Long Beach, that's when actually digital, you know, was sort of like introduced as a class as well. And, you know, I sort of fell in love with digital. So ended up, you know, being design, advertising, digital. Um, So I had a broad understanding of all three um, you know, three sort of like segments or sections, whatever you want to call them, uh, of, of, of the medium, you know. And when I got out of school, um, I ended up working more on the design side of things. And then a few years later, I went into more of the advertising world with, you know, emphasis on digital. And then eventually where I'm at right now, it's more of the, the broadcast, you know, the TV uh, side of things. So sort of like the trajectory actually helped me because it gave me all the tools that I need now. Um, you know, when a big campaign comes, like, you know, you mentioned, you know, FIFA or Super Bowl, I'm able to sort of like sell an idea, but not just TV, but how does that TV sort of become a campaign and everyone throws this word around more of a 360 experience. And that's where I think my strength is, you know, so I'm able to come in and say, you know, here's the idea, here's what the TV is that ladders up to, you know, the the message that we want to get across about the vehicle or feature. But then again, here's how we would take this TV spot and, you know, execute it as a campaign on different platforms, whether it's social, digital, you know, CRM, uh, you name it, you know. So it's just, you know, if there's a microsite, you know, I completely understand how to build a site. So I'm able to sell the idea on how people would experience it there. Or if there's no microsite, how would this, you know, elevate or how, how do we get the awareness out on, you know, online media, social and so forth. So it's been, you know, my, my schooling at, at Cal State Long Beach has sort of helped me 
who I am right now as a as an associate creative director. That's great. So, what was your first job when you got out of school? So, actually, before I got out of school, I used to work for uh, a guy by the name Abe. He used to own a service bureau, and he, uh, you know, it was all just like printing. You know, you just go there and you get your stuff printed. So, a lot of the students used to come there and get their files printed. And I was the guy who used to print the files for them. And a lot of times they would have, you know, problems with their computers or their disk and so forth. That was actually a great experience because I learned how to solve all these problems with computers. So uh, that, that, that's still, you know, nowadays, you know, when computers fall apart, I'm able to get in and fix it. Back then, uh, I don't know if you remember, you know, we went from floppy disk mm -hmm. to, to zip drives. Zip drives, and then no, there was one before. There was like the I Omega zip drives, which weighed like a cell phone. <laughs> yeah, there was there was one before. Zip drives were like smaller, one hundred megabytes, and it was like oh my god. And then there was two hundred megabytes. It was like you know, but there was there was another one that that after floppy disk, there was another one that came out. You actually put it in. It's like a big tape. You put it in. And, you know, it takes a while. There was a noise I used to make. And, you would, you know, that means it's working. But if, if, the, if, if you put it in, right, and it starts going, you're screwed. Not a good sign. It's not a good sign, man. I just like, everyone is like, they bring their disc. You put it in. It's like, it's like, all right, let's get going. And then when you hear that noise, man, you turn around and look at that kid. Man. Sorry, dude. And then probably the poor kid spent like, hours and hours working on it and the thing is back then you didn't have computers at home you didn't have laptops so you would have to go to a lab and when you go to a lab you're given one hour on a computer because they don't want you to take all the time in the world so you had one hour to come up with your design comp it get it ready for you know a print a printout at a service bureau that miles away you can't email it you have to physically go there, and then when you put that drive in and it falls apart, man, that was the worst feeling in the world. Anyhow, that, that, was, that was the service bureau experience. And then what he did was he actually opened uh, a, a pre-pro, a, a pre I think it was pre-pro house. I think it was pre-press house. Pre-press house. Yep. So That's where I got started, house. actually. That's where you got started. So yeah. he opened that on the side where we were preparing files for printing. Like, we wouldn't print, but we'd prepare it. So I started learning how to prepare files, how to output, you know, when there's glitches. And then he got into color correcting. Mm. And I got exposed into how to color correct the files. And we would print out proofs. The client would approve it. Then we do the film. And then I ended up working for a company called Write Design. And they actually did product development. You know, they used to do like coasters, uh, cup holders dog bolts, you name it. So that was another whole different area of design that I got involved into and how to create, you know, these house products or pet products, kid products. And from there, uh, during my junior year, I ended up winning a, uh, an internship at Oakley Glasses in, uh, in, uh, down in Orange County. Oh, nice. So I ended up working at a company where it was an internal design house so everything is done in-house but then again the product is done there too it's not like they have a client they are the client that was an interesting experience you know um actually pack designing packaging logos and so forth for for 
you know, for Oakley, my, actually one cool thing that happened while I was there was um, I ended up, I ended up um, meeting uh, Michael Jordan because he was a stockholder at uh, at Oakley. Really? Yeah, and that one year um, that I was there, they had, I guess, meetings, and he was designing a glass called, I think, Romeo. Yeah, it was Romeo. Um, so he was there, and it was interesting. You know, you couldn't you couldn't get an autograph. You couldn't walk up to him. And talk. There there were certain rules. You know, you had to follow. And you know, I was sitting around my cube. Whenever he comes, you know, I'll just like creep up and look. I mean, he's a tall guy. Mm-hmm. Everyone else is like passing, but all you see is Michael Fed passing <laughs> through the cubicles. It was kind of cool. And he had That's his awesome. own office. Um, and you know, that was that was sort of like my experience uh, at, at, at Oakley. Um, and then from there, back to your question, I ended up working for a place called Sergeant Berman, and they focused on entertainment industries. And they used to do, you know, from advertising to style guide to logo design, everything, when a new campaign would come out. And, you know, there was a couple of campaigns, uh, a couple of kids shows on for Sony Pictures, uh, like when the first Spider-Man came out, uh, there was I, I, there was like a lot of it was like TV show. So we would actually establish the style guide for for the for the show, and they would use that to remarket, you know, the show and promote it and so forth. And then from there, I ended up to a place called Answer I Think uh, by uh, a, a, a guy who actually graduated from Cal State Long Beach. And he came to my senior show and he said, I'm going to give you one year. After one year at Sergeant Merman, I'm going to contact you. And he contacted me and he said, are you ready to move on? And I said, sure. Uh, the pay was good. So I took the job and, you know, that's where I started getting exposed into digital, pushing more of the digital advertising, print and so forth. Um, and then, you know, years later, that place uh, closed uh, I ended up starting my own. Uh, I, I left actually. They ended up moving me to the from the LA office to, to Torrance office. I worked there for a while, and then after there, I ended up opening my own. And I ran my own little, you know, advertising slash design shop in Long Beach, California, for about five years. By the name of Visual Morph. That is right. Visual Morph it was. Yep. And I had a couple of clients there. I had uh, Toyota, Neutrogena. I remember. Uh, uh, yeah, at Los Angeles Master Corral. Uh, and a couple, you know, small, uh, you know, you know, businesses that, you know, mm-hmm. that needed, you know, whether it's logo, website, whatever. I helped them out. And I st- it's funny. I still stay in touch with a lot of these people. Um, yeah. So... So going back to your experience, pre-press and all, all these things that you had exposure to, that a lot of kids that are going to school nowadays, going to design school, don't have access to those kind of things. However, you know, they don't have the problem that, that you or I did where, you know, we didn't have a computer at all times. We didn't have any of the apps, um, none of the tools. We didn't have YouTube to find out what other people were doing. So if you had all those tools, do you think that would have made you a better designer or did not having it actually contribute to, you know, your creative process? That's an interesting question. I think, you know, like, like anything else, the more resource you have, the more knowledge you have, you know, the better, 
you're going to get. So I imagine, you know, this younger generation with all the resource that they have, they're going to be much better designers, much more aware of not only, you know, what they learn at school, but the things that they discover uh, online. I used to go to Barnes and Nobles a lot. Mm-hmm. And I used to buy these thick books that mm-hmm. were expensive as hell, you know, like mm-hmm. for logo design, brochure design, website design. And, you know, I spent ridiculous amount of money, which I didn't have back then. <laughs> but that that was my knowledge base, you know. And anytime I had to do a design or, uh, you know, a, a project, you know, I sometimes will go in and reference to some of the, you know, famous designers that are published in, you know, communication arts and so forth. So that was, that was really helpful. But nowadays, you know, you can just go online and search, you know, uh, a designer that you like or something may lead you, like you might go to Tumblr and it may lead you to, uh, you know, a typography you like. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's this amazing typographer that has libraries of work or an advertising person that has library of, of, of work that they've done. So you're able to do... Uh, your research really quick and come up with, you know, a better idea or that inspires you to create something completely different, something never been done before, never seen before. So, uh, yeah, I mean, if I had all that, I think, I don't know, I don't know if I want to say a better design, (laughs) (laughs) if you're putting that in mind. No, but yeah, I think, I think that would probably, you know, uh, make me a better designer. Yes. Interesting. I'll so talking about, you know, speaking about typefaces, every designer that I know has like their five go-to or like, you know, the handful of typefaces that they really like. Do you have, you know, the the three or five that you like using a lot? So I used to hate Helvetica. But then really? again, I, I saw the movie Helvetica and I was <laughs> away. Which is an but excellent film, by the way. So anybody who's listening yeah. should should go online and, and watch Helvetica. It's a great film that introduces you into the world of graphic design and typography. Now, yes, it's a great font. It's, it's, <laughs> but it's also the font that the Nazi party used, right? So did you, did you know that? Yeah. <laughs> that's crazy, right? It's well, the, that's the Nazi one party was branded with Helvetica. Uh, that's one reason. Well, no, but... Uh, <laughs> It's it's well designed, but it's overused. You know, it's like it's ever it's like the generic font. But then again, you know, there's there's something beautiful about being a generic font if you use it the right place, right time. Like for street signs, and it, it reads really well. So, yeah, Helvetica. I I don't know if I'll put it in my top, but that that's a good place to start. I think the ones. The one unique one that I used to use, uh, which is a serif font, was called Mrs. Eves. It's kind of unique. There's Dint Schriften, again, another, I think, German font, but well-designed. I think it was, you know, sort of like the next phase of Helvetica. Uh, There is Futura, um, you know, a great, great design. Uh, Again, might be German also. (laughs) So I guess I'm more on the sans serif sort of side of things versus serif and do you have any favorite designers yeah i mean i sort of exposed myself to whatever was current there wasn't like one or two designers i looked at and i'm like i'm gonna be you know just like them or 
you know, I was inspired by it. But the thing about me is I'm in so many different mediums, you know, that there isn't one person that does, you know, print out of you know, all of it, you know. So I haven't found that person, but in the different disciplines, yeah, there's different people that that you know I follow and like their work and so forth. So tell me, tell me about the first big project that you worked on, whether it was earlier on in your career or um, you know if it came a little later. What was the what was the moment that you worked on a campaign and you said, "I have arrived"? Like this is millions of people are going to see this, and it's work that you are really proud of. Very simple answer. It would be. 2014 FIFA campaign called Because Football. For Hyundai. For Hyundai, yeah. Which that, brings us to your where you are today at in Ocean, correct? Right, right. So tell tell us about your role there and, and your involvement in that campaign and, and the other projects that you've worked on. So my involvement here is an associate creative director. Uh, I work with uh, a close friend of mine, uh, Nick, who's a, a writer. So the two of us usually work on different campaigns that we get pulled into. And, you know, like everything else, any other agency, you compete for an idea or you compete for a campaign. And then if you win that campaign, you basically, you know, run it. So in the case of FIFA, uh, we ended up, you know, uh, sort of, you know, coming up with ideas that laddered up to because football and the idea because because football was that, you know, football fans in the world do crazy things, you know, whether it's wake up early in the morning to watch the game, uh, shave their heads, paint their face, you know, uh, wear all kinds of crazy gears. Why do they do all this? Because football. So it was a it was a nice ethos sort of like, you know, to use for a campaign. And we ended up doing two TV spots. One was, uh, you know, the the idea of, you know, um, nine months of uh, of uh, it, was, it was it was actually based on a on a true story. Nine months after, you know, Spain won the game and the last FIFA in, uh, in South Africa, a lot of kids were born. <laughs> Childbirth increased Childbirth as a result increased of because, of because of football. <laughs> wow. So we took that idea and sort of came up with a TV spot where, you know, it, it sort of opens up with, you know, all these, uh, this woman, uh, you know, with her husband walking into a child labor, you know, it's it's like a hospital and you see all these pregnant people and they just look at everyone and the doctor is like, what's going on? He's like, what happened nine months ago, you know, in, in, in Spanish? And, uh, and then you see a room full of like a bunch of little kids and the nurse is questioning the same thing. She's like, what happened nine months ago? And then we cut to, you know, nine months before everyone celebrating to a win, like jumping around at the restaurant, at the bar, at the barber, you name it. And it works its way back to, you know, the two couple that you saw at the opening ending up, you know, sort of like making out with a car park outside. And it says because football. So and the car parked outside obviously is the, is the Hyundai car that you guys are selling. That's the Hyundai car. <laughs> the cool thing about this campaign was, you know, the client, wasn't about you know handing out business cards like you don't need to show the Hyundai you know and all and everything and everything 
it, was, it showed up at the end. The whole idea was about you know Hyundai being the sponsor of NFL of 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 uh, FIFA, and and just being there, enjoying it, and sort of being relevant. And that was the thing about because football, you know, it just made them relevant, you know, and a lot of people embraced it. So we ended up building a Tumblr page where, you know, for however long FIFA was running for, um, we ended up uh, getting a lot of people to come in and see the content. And a lot of the content was like illustration, photograph, GIF animation, you name it, all kinds of stuff that paid off, you know, because football. And people would come in and use that content during a game or after a game. So, you know, whether it's a rivalry or whether it's, you know, you, you want to throw a little smack against the other team that lost or you want to celebrate a moment, you know, we created all these different pieces of art that people would actually take and post it on their Facebook page or social channels, you know, social, you know, Twitter and so forth. And then the other thing that we did was we had, uh, you know, certain games that we picked because Hyundai, it was, you know, this was our, our agency sort of oversees the U.S. market. So we sort of focused on a few of the teams, you know, it's like Mexico, U.S., and then a few of the other teams that we thought would win, like Spain and, you know, Brazil and Germany. So we ended up creating enough work for those teams. But at the same time, we had real-time content. So when the game would start between, you know, Germany and U.S., we would have artwork that's ready to go out. So if U.S. wins, we'll do this. If U.S. loses, we'll do this. If Germany wins, if... Uh, and then on top of it, we added the element of actually having some of these illustrators available uh, during a game in case something amazing happens, we can actually create a piece around that moment. Uh, so I, I think I ended up about with 14 illustrators, some photographers and small agencies basically helping me through the campaign. And on top of it, we ended up getting two guinea pigs, like actual <laughs> real guinea pigs. Explain that. Office. Oh my God, dude. We sold the idea of having the two guinea pigs. It was the same idea as the, you know, the octopus where he guesses, you know, which team was going to win. But we ended up, we ended up, um, the, no, the one that we did was actually food. So we had food with a flag next to oh, it. Oh, that's right. We that's had, right. Uh, you know, we had the flag of America, <laughs> the flag of, of, of Germany, and we would put the guinea pig right in the middle. Sometimes he would sit in the middle, sometimes he'd be on the side, and he would come in, and basically, uh, whichever one he eats from, that's the one that's going to win. So we would shoot, <laughs> you know, day before, have the, have the video ready, and post it right when the game starts you know was there was there any science that went into that where you guys made sure that a specific color didn't attract that guinea pig or so if 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 there was a flag that had yellow oh, you're pr pretty much we, predisposed to, to winning all the time <laughs> we didn't get that deep man. I, had, I had i had 14 illustrators to work with all these assets to develop and then not only did we have to like build and test these guinea pigs but we had to take care of them like we had to clean poop. <laughs> oh man it was it was it was nuts is that uh, is that where the creative director says we should get two guinea pigs and like no thought goes into it you, just, you guys just do it no we, no we came up with the idea it wasn't our creative director oh, we fantastic. came up with the idea so we we ended up having to go to our ceo and tell him and he basically gave us this little room and it starts smelling so we had to put all kinds of stuff 
to make sure it does as well. And then on the weekend, someone has to feed them. So we had to take, you know, different turns <laughs> to come in and feed them. And then we got these two guinea pigs from a lady somewhere, you know, in North uh, Los Angeles. And, you know, my producer went with me and we picked them up. It was a crazy lady. Uh, and she was really sad to give them up. And, and then she told us, you have to bore the pigs. And we're like, what is boring? <laughs> Oh, man. <laughs> and you basically have to take, you know, take, do you have to take them into like a daycare type of place or no, overnight no. or something. No, 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 boring. I, we oh, boring. Up, I thought you said boarding. No, no, boring. What is and, so? Explain to me as well as the listeners who don't know what boring is. I didn't know what it was. You know, I'm an Ethiopian. What the hell? You know, <laughs> so she brings out, you know, Q-tips, and she basically goes in their anal and cleans them out you know? <laughs> the producer almost had she was like looking at me she's like uh-uh <laughs> we are not doing the minute the lady walked in there she's like we are not doing that david i'm like what do you mean? if we don't bore them they're gonna die <laughs> and she's like david we're gonna return these skinny pigs right now i'm not boring <laughs> I had no idea where this was going. <laughs> we never uh, bored the pigs. We ended up keeping them here. Uh, we, uh, hopefully, Peter is not listening to this because <laughs> they find out we didn't bore the pigs. We can get in trouble here. <laughs> so, so we ended up, we ended up uh, keeping them here during the game. And then at the end, you know, we had to find a home for them. So we had to tell everyone in the office, uh, you know, does anyone want guinea pigs, you know, for their kids? So one of the guys took them and he gave them to their neighbors. They lived actually for a long time. One of them just died. So the other thing Wait, is... did the neighbors know that they had to do the boring bored? thing? <laughs> we didn't tell them. You didn't tell them. <laughs> Don't tell them, please. <laughs> we oh, didn't that's wanna, great. You know, if we told them... They had to bore them, but then they probably wouldn't take them. So we had to be you know, diplomatic about it. So anyhow, the, we had to get two because we only needed one. But the lady told us, you have to take two. These are animals that need, you know, companionship. So, so we had, we called one Tony, which was our CEO. And we called the other one Barney, who was our creative director. So Tony was always in the limelight, you know. Barney was a troublemaker, you know, he was just like running around all over the place, pooping. And, you know, at the end, I think Barney died first because he was just, you know, clueless. Probably, you know, he did something crazy, shock him. I don't know how he died. But anyhow, the story is we did crazy things. And that was one of the craziest things I've ever done. I mean, the campaign was amazing, but that was the craziest thing. So I think if you go online, like Hyundai's website or even on my website, if you go there, you'll actually see the video. There's a part where we're like preparing to shoot the guinea pig, and there's an actual video of uh, of the guinea pig. So there you have it. We'll be that sure to post uh, for all the listeners. We'll be sure to post the the campaign and all the creative around it. But Dave, I, I want to get into for people who don't know, like what is what is your day to day? What is because a lot of people think that advertising is one of those things where there's just a bunch of crazy people in a room. And they just come up with crazy ideas and they just do it without a lot of, you know, strategy and, and thinking around that. So, yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I think the, a good place to start is, again, I, I 
don't remember the agency. I know whoever's going to listen to this is probably going to say you should know that. But the good old days, you know, you had art department, um, you know, in a certain building and then copywriters in a different building. I think I want to say it's... And what do, what do those departments do for <clears throat> people who don't know? I mean, the writers are... The, the writers ones, write. <laughs> yeah, basically. It's a very simple job. You just have to write, okay? Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> uh, the writers, yeah. They're, you know, nowadays, you know, or even, you know, after they combine these two, basically these two people sort of come up with the idea. So the writer and art director, the writer sort of establishes the tone and the two sort of come up with the concept. The writer writes it and then the art director is able to show visually what they would execute. So in the case of a print ad, you know, what's the headline that ladders up to, you know, to the product or feature and then the art director would have the image that sort of pays off the 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 you know the headline i mean that image can be metaphor or it could be you know uh whatever the headline says pays off or it makes you question what the headline is it, you know it varies so there's different ways you can execute uh an idea so the two really work together but going back to what i was saying earlier you know way way back i think this is probably in the 40s 50s whatever again my timing might be wrong but those two were considered two different departments. Like mm -hmm. the writer will write it and then it will be handed over to the art department and the art department will take it and they'll become with, you know, they will draw, they'll put together uh, an image behind it. And then it goes to, you know, the creative guy that's going to sell the idea, walks in the room, you know, and sells the idea. Madman. Pretty much. much Madman, basically, that's it. Um, but uh, as you saw, even Madman, I think around the end, the two started to work, like the art director and the copyright started to work. So in terms of titles, you know, uh, as an art director, you probably start as a junior, you know, and then, uh, you know, a senior. And then, you know, you become uh, uh, an associate creative director. And then these titles actually vary from agency to agency. But the trajectory is, you know, junior, senior, uh, and then uh, ACD, Associate Creative Director, and then you become a creative director, and then you can become executive creative director that oversees all the campaign. But between actually executive creative director and creative director, you can be a group creative director. So in an agency where you have multiple accounts, the group creative director sort of oversees all the creative before it goes to the, the the ECD, the executive director. Uh, a creative director might be someone that only works on one uh, account or two accounts, and their job is basically to oversee the associate directors, the juniors, the seniors, making sure you know they come up with the idea and ladder us up to the creative director. So my position is basically, uh, as an associate of creative director, is to have that partner and sort of pitch an idea and work with a creative director to sell the idea to the client. Um, so that's, it's the same for a writer as well. You know, they start junior, senior, ACD, creative director, group creative director, and ECD. So a lot of times at places you may have a writer or art director that's running the shop and then below him or her, you may have, you know, group creative directors that sometimes are art directors, some are uh, copy background, it varies. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned compete, you know, competition model, which 
a lot of agencies still do it's the traditional model of being able to compete against other groups. So there's another group within your agency that, that comes up with ideas and you guys have to compete amongst each other. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, it's it's very competitive, you know. And, and does that work? I mean, do you, do you feel like that's the best work environment or are you at your best when you're left alone and you can come up with the best idea that you can come up with or do you feel like the competitive model is still, you know, very effective? Well, you do need the the competitive, I guess, model because at the end of the day, it's the best idea that's going to sell, right? So to get to the best idea, you sort of have to compete with other teams. So everyone pitches an idea that pays off whatever the product is, you know. So if it's a new product, it's a vehicle, it has, you know, you the, the everything starts with strategy, right? So they find out all the information they share it with us. They will say, you know, the model is this, you know, it has these amazing features, you know, in terms of competition, uh, when you put it next to the other vehicles, here are some of the benefits. Uh, the demographic is this, you know, they had the, 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 the message that we want to get across is X, Y, and Z. So you get that information, you take that information and the, the account and, you know, clients sort of figure out what, what sort of mediums they want to use to, to promote, to market a product. So it might be TV, it might be, you know, print, billboard, online, social, whatever. Sometimes it might be all of it, right? In the case of Super Bowl, you sort of use all the mediums, you know, within budget. And, and then it comes to the creatives, you know, so the associative creative directors, the the senior art directors, all of these are people that are in the agency just waiting for the project. So the project comes in, you get briefed, and then you sort of go in your own little world and you come back with ideas, you know. Uh, sometimes you have, you know, creative directors that are very disciplined and then there are creative directors that are not disciplined, you know. The creative directors that are disciplined, you know, they would say, you know, come up with some sort of, hook, you know, and a manifesto for that hook, for that line, you know. So that's where ideas like because football sort of come in, you know. It's like because football, you do the manifesto is people do crazy things. Soccer fans do crazy things, blah, 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 blah. And the hook is because football. And then you do several of those, you know, and the disciplined creative director will say, you know, oh, one, two, three, four, these ideas are great. I want you to go and push them a bit further and explore, you know, how you would take this idea and make uh, a, a TV spot uh, and, uh, you know, a print ad and maybe, you know, an online ad advertising. So what they're doing is they're, they're reviewing every creative and they're picking ideas they like and they're asking them to do the next phase, which is, you know, developing those three mediums. And then they look at those and they say, okay, you know what? Love this TV idea. Don't, don't love this one so much. Refine this and bring it back. So you start focusing on one specific area with that handle and manifesto. And then at the end of the day, you have, you know, let's say six groups. All six have ideas that have, you know, uh, the handle, the manifesto, the TV spot, and the ECD, when the executive creative director comes, 
you're sort of painting a picture of where this idea is heading, you know, where all these good ideas are that ladder up to the strategy when that client asked. And then from there, the ECD's job is he or she has a lot more insight than we do of what's taking place in the background. They'll be able to say, you know, I want these three ideas to move forward because they, they hit, you know, they're right on when it comes to strategy. I think this is where the client wants to be this, where we want to take the client, you know, you make different decisions. You know, you have some executive directors that are interested in, you know, executing the client request, but at the same time winning awards for the agency. So it varies, whatever the modem is, you know, uh, uh, it varies. So they would select the ideas they like, and then based on the selections, you know, you've gone through your competition, you've probably made it at the end. By the time it gets to the client, they feel like, you know, okay, we've reached, you know, a consensus. Um, this is a direction we want to go. Or sometimes you will go into the client and, you know, in some cases the client will be like, well, good, good start, but you just don't feel like you're heading in the right direction. How about we do this? How about we do that? When that happens, usually a major, a major change has taken place in the background and the agency didn't know about it and they just found out, you know, whether it's budgetary or a product feature that was mentioned that was not incorrect, that happens, you know, and a lot of times you go back to the drawing board and this actually gives the other teams that didn't make it an opportunity to come back in and compete again because you open the, the project all over again. So now we have a little bit more insight a little more refined, even though you went through that process of getting your idea all the way to the end, the client may have just killed your idea or parts of it are okay, you can refine it, or you can go on and come up with a new idea. So this is the dilemma where you make the decision, you know what, I put a lot of effort into this, I love this idea, I'm going to push it, but at the same time, I'm going to pitch for this other approach. And then at the end of the day, what happens is the second round comes in and like anything else, you know, it's just humanity. People gravitate towards new ideas, you know, and you start either your idea makes it to the end or another person's idea makes it to the end. Um, so I've, I've, I've learned, I've seen both sides, you know, I've gotten ideas in the first time and I've gotten ideas the second time, the third time that made it all the way to the end. Um, so with a disciplined creative director, that's, that's sort of like the process. With an undisciplined creative director, you're all over the place. <laughs> you know, it's like, they, they, one, they don't know what they want. They're not communicating correctly. And then three is, after you do what they asked, they can't make a decision. And that's not only on creative directors, but it could also be on executive creative director level and that's where an agency gets affected you know and and, and it's either an it's an effective agency or it's not you know it starts with the leaders and works its way down so dave tell us about kind of the advice that you might give to either ethiopian-owned businesses or um, businesses that maybe don't spend advertising dollars and, and what's the benefit i mean how do you describe the benefit of uh, spending ad dollars because you know many people especially small business owners or even medium business owners don't know you know how much they should spend they don't believe in advertising they don't they don't feel like maybe it's it's necessary so or they can do it themselves and you know, 
what's what's the advice that you can give them? I mean, it, I think it's tough for small businesses to hire an advertising agency because the return on investment won't be worthwhile. So I can understand, you know, why they don't want to work with with you know agencies. It, it makes sense, just you know, logically. Uh, you're not you're not going to get anything back unless you know you're a very you're a small agency that has a, a unique product and, and requires you know a special agency to help bring that product to market. Of course, you know as long as you have the investment dollars to uh, you know to put the money into it. Or the even, benefit or even freelance designers. Uh, I mean, on, on a smaller <clears throat> scale, probably not a lot of businesses are going to afford. In Ocean's rate for for the work right, that you do, right? That's, but when you were freelancing, I'm sure, you know, you you got to work with you know some medium sized businesses. I think medium size, yeah, for medium size agents. Again, the smaller agency, the smaller clients. Like I said, you know, if they have a unique product they just came up with and they need to get that product out in the market, you need an ad agency because, you know. You want you you want people to know about the product and so forth. But then again, you have a, a lot of small uh, companies that are doing the same thing. You know, it's, it's it's not a unique product. You know, so you're there's another guy or another lady two doors down that's doing the same thing. So in terms of advertising dollars, probably word of mouth would work better. But when you're talking about medium size, yeah, sure. Now you're talking about you know hiring, uh, you know a small firm or, you know, a freelancers. And why you want to do that is because you want to have a consistent tone. And the only person that can help you with actually establishing the tone, having a consistent tone, whether it's, you know, the design, the logo, the brand, or the messaging is an individual that's outside your your company that has a different perspective, that has the talent, you know. Uh, so that that's why you would do it. And then you would work out a deal where, you know, depending on how much you want to invest in marketing um, and advertising and, you know, depending on how well that person or company is, is set up, the, the key thing is to really go in and have uh, an idea of what you're trying to accomplish, you know, that way so you can measure it. And if you invest X amount of money, and you get X amount of clients or sold X amount of product, you know, if that is what you're trying to achieve, set that as your goal. That is your strategy. And then you go to the to the person and say, okay, I need to push X amount of products. How can you help me? So you work around that, you work around the budget they have, and you're able to achieve. If you're not able to achieve, then you find out, you know, why you aren't able to achieve maybe the product's not correct or maybe you're not marketing to the right people. And a lot of this can be figured out by, you know, the tools that you use to market that person's product. So the 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 benefit to me is for medium-sized companies working with agencies is you find out where your market is, you know, you can work within your budget, you know, it can, you know, it can be as small as just search you know, uh, search marketing. Uh, it can be as simple as Facebook marketing. And these are things, yeah, you might say, you know what, I can do this myself. But then again, it goes back to the tone. Your tone might be inconsistent. Are you measuring all the, you know, search that you're doing? What terms are driving traffic back to your site? 
what visuals are driving traffic back to your site if you're using you know, Facebook ads. So these are the things a small agency or an individual can help you with. But at the end of the day, is it's about you having an idea of what you want to achieve. You, know, you can't just do an ad for ad's sake. You have to do an ad. That comes later. I think you start with, what is it that I want to achieve? Is it sales? You know? And if it's sales, then you work around that. Um, that that would be my. Did I answer the question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's perfect. Okay. So, okay. and I have another question that spins out of that one. So, in dealing with you know smaller businesses, which you know I did earlier on, and I'm sure you you probably did. You know, one of the biggest struggles is trying to convince a client, you know, of certain creative decisions, which you know clients will always micromanage. You know, the the kind of the generic thing that a lot of people make fun of in our industry is make the logo bigger. You know, there's there's certain things that the client will always say that maybe isn't the best creative feedback. How do you, you know, well, two things. First is what are the some of the challenges that you've seen earlier in your career with smaller clients, smaller companies? And then, you know, what's the learning and what's the advice that you might give to somebody who might be listening who has a small business and they are interested in doing creative and advertising and, and how should they go about their, their All process. Right. Uh, so let's start with the logo, right? <laughs> My solution for that. <laughs> you make it really big, right? That's that's what every designer says. Make no, it really, no, really big. No, you don't make it really big. What you do is you just create three logos, right? The logo that you want the logo to be, right? And then you make a medium-sized logo of that one. And you make a smaller size of that logo. And then you go to the client and you say, you know, I explored three ways of laying your logo out. I have the big one, the medium one, or the small one. And which one are they going to select? The big one, which is the one. <laughs> Always. <laughs> which is the one. You, you never want to go with one logo because they're always going to say, can you make it 20% bigger, right? Absolutely. So you always go in with the one that you like and then make two versions that are smaller. And then they will always be like, Yep, the big one is the one that I want to go with. That's great. <laughs> that is a, a brilliant, brilliant tactic, man. I'm telling you, <laughs> one of my learnings earlier on, like when I went out on my own to start my agency, was yeah. never show something that you don't want a client to approve. Like, never do it just to do it. Yeah, but if they go smaller, in this case, you're you're yeah, you're, you're fine, you're right? Yeah. You're, you're <laughs> exactly. Even better. Like, ah, it's a little. So the biggest one that you show them is, the small, is the, the biggest medium. you'd ever go, and you you would be okay with. <laughs> All right. So moving forward, how would you, you know, how how do you deal with some certain of those, you know, those other challenges? Or actually, you might have answered that question, but more importantly, what's the advice that you might give to those small businesses who who want to do, you know, some advertising or creative for their business? So I, I think it's finding the right partner. You know, so earlier we were saying, you know, you wouldn't come to. Envision uh, or you know an ocean envision an ocean for you know a small agency. It just doesn't make sense the return on investment. You know the amount of money that you put into it. So you really it's 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 like a partnership. So it's searching, finding the right partner. You know, go online, 
um, you know, just the same way. It's like, are they marketing themselves? You know, if you're mar if you're a small agency, you should be marketing yourself to local businesses. And if you're doing that, they will find you. And if you are someone who's looking for business and you're searching, you find that person, that's a good sign that that agency is doing a good job marketing themselves and they will do a good job making sure they market you. So that's the first place you can find, you know, the right agency. And then, you know, you make a phone call, uh, look at the work that they've done. And, you know, sometimes you can start with simply saying, hey, this is my budget. This is what I want to do. Can you help me? And that agency can say yes or no. In many cases, they'll say yes. And in many cases, they will actually deliver more than they promised because what you end up with is a lot more insight, not just the print ad or, you know, the banner or the search, whatever. They will come in and try to sell you with more ideas. So the benefit for you going with, you know, the agency, the right agency is, or even a medium or a large size agency is, you might walk away with tons of stuff, you know? You got nothing to lose. I mean, at the end of the day, you can walk away and say, I don't want to work with this agency. <clears throat> I'm not saying that's a good idea, but that happens, you know. Uh, so it's it's good to go out there and find out, you know, what agencies are out there, what are they doing, how they can help your business, and then see if things work out. You know, establish, again, a goal. If you reach that goal, great. If you don't reach that goal, you move on to the next agency. Um but, you know, everyone has, if you're ready to grow your business, you really need, uh, you know, uh, a partner to help you. Dave, what kind of things are you doing outside of work just to kind of, you know, you mentioned that you, you like to surf. Is, is, are there any other hobbies that you have that, that either feed your creativity or maybe they don't have anything to do with creativity at all? Uh, babysit my kids. <laughs> <laughs> I have two beautiful kids. One ten-year-old, uh, and the other one that's about six months now. So they take up a lot of my time on the weekends. I mean, weekend comes, you know, it's like you know, karate, uh, you know, soccer, and then in between, I'm always—I don't know. This is my world. I'm always on computer, just researching on the weekends. That's what feeds my my creativity. You know, I'm always looking and searching, finding new, new ways of doing things, the technical, the design, blah, blah. You know, I have, uh, I just purchased a black magic camera and just shooting, you know, my kids with it, color correcting it, editing it. Shooting so video, I'm, right? So, I mean, that's something you and I have been talking about. Yeah. You, you've posted a couple of your videos online, which I think are awesome. So is there, is there aspirations to do like a, you know, a film or like, are you trying to do something uh, like a pet project? No, it's more of like just refining, you know, like whenever we're shooting a commercial, now I have a better understanding of lenses. I have a better understanding of angles. I have a better understanding of, you know, uh, grading the film. I have a better understanding of mixing the sound. So I always give myself a challenge. Like I taught myself how to program a website, you know, in the good old days, I actually built my own website. I taught myself, you know, how to build a flash website and then how to build flash banners. But this takes time, you know. It's, you teach yourself uh, shooting with a camera and editing. And all this stuff comes handy. It goes back to, you know, my background, which is like wanting to know anything and everything and just challenging myself. So I'm constantly searching, you know. Uh, I'm constantly trying to 
refine the things that I do and bring something to the table. You know, going back to also what we talked about in terms of competition, you know, when you're competing with people daily, you, you know, some of the leverage that you bring in, you know, other than the idea, which is the most important, is people feel comfortable around you when they know you can not only come up with the concept, design it, but also execute it. And that goes back to my schooling, you know, just being able to do all those three things. That's right. So for somebody who's considering either changing their career into something along the line, lines of advertising or creative Don't do it. design. <laughs> or, or even, you know, somebody who's in school right now or, or maybe yeah. he's in high school who, who wants, who doesn't know anything about it or is, is now piquing their interest, you know, what's the advice that you might give to those people out there? There's this preconception that in order to be a creative, you have to know how to draw, which isn't true. Um, but, you know, a lot of people are afraid of entering this creative, you know, industry because they don't think they're good enough at whatever, coming up with an idea or even with their artistic ability, which is, for the most part, learned. So what's what's your takeaway on that? So in terms of getting into the industry, it's, you know, if you, if you are someone at school, yeah, I mean, pursue it. You're in school because you love it and you're passionate about it. I think that's the most important thing. You must love it. You must be passionately wanting to do this day and day out. Like I said, on the weekends, I'm constantly searching and looking and wanting to do, wanting to learn. If you're that type of person, I highly recommend it. Um, but if you're the type of person that's just interested in this field because of what you heard and what you saw on Mad Men, don't do it because you're going to be miserable and you're going to make the people around you miserable. And when it's competitive, it becomes, you know, when competition comes and you're not winning, it's not fun. It's not fun because the other team wants to do this. Not only they're creative, they're smart. They can come up with 10 ideas before, you know, before you turn around, but they're going to win every idea. And that's just going to drive you nuts. So make sure this is something that you want to do day in, day out. You know, that, that's the key thing. Make sure you love it to death, you know. And then, you know, if you want to switch, switch, you know. So if, if you are not in the industry and you want to come over to, you know, advertising, just make sure you're passionate about it. So that's, that's the key thing if you want to change an industry. But if you're at school, yeah, I mean, pursue it. By all means, uh, it's it's a great field. It's competitive, like I said, but it's great. So, would you rather be doing anything else other than advertising? Nope. <laughs> That's a pretty quick answer. I, I'm, I'm serious. Sorry. I honestly, I don't want my clients to know this, but if I would be doing this if they didn't pay me. That's how much I yeah. really enjoy doing it. Yeah. Well, that's that's also the problem, you know. That's also the advantage. It goes back to what I was saying earlier. When you come as a client to ad agencies or, you know, an individual, it, there's something about this field. Like if you're into it and you learn a new technique or you have some insight, <clears throat> you're going to share everything, you know, with with that client of yours. Because what you want to do is there's so much competition. You want to show them, you know, that you have a lot to offer. So the benefit of going with, you know, uh, whether it's ad, freelance, or whatever, you're going to walk away with a lot of insight. So, you know, small businesses that are listening to this, I don't know if they're small businesses or medium, whatever, you, there's a huge advantage, you know, for, for you to, you know, 
try out. Before I let you go, um, I want to ask you what what's what's next for you, man? What do you want to do? Is there is there a goal? Is there like a end game? The end game would be to enjoy my kids as much as possible, surf around the world, uh, <laughs> be a good husband, be a good dad, uh, and be a good human being. That's the end goal. I think you're doing all of those. I try to do those things. Exponentially. Well. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic, man. So, so how do our listeners get a hold of you? Can you give them your website, your agency's website? Uh, my website, it's pretty simple, actually. DavidMesfin.com. And my email is david at davidmesfin.com. So you can either go to my website and reach me from there, or you can shoot me an email. Awesome. David, thank you so much. It's been so much fun talking to you and uh, best of luck to you. Hey, man. Thanks for inviting me. This was wonderful. I enjoyed it. I wish you all the best uh, with this program and uh, look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you. All right, bud. You can also find out more about David Messman on ethiospodcast.com slash interviews. I want to give a special thanks to David Mesfin for being the first guest on Ethios, as well as to Omega Watts for providing the music for this show. Finally, I want to thank all of the listeners of this show. I'll see you next week. And remember, work hard and be nice to people. God bless you.